A few months ago, my wife and I were on a trip to Portland, Oregon. One day after the, the evening conference, we went out looking for a snack, and we saw that there was a grocery store right down the block. So we walked down the street, and it was this little health food store. So we walked in, and I didn't realize how healthy it was until we got in there. They had buckets of quinoa and beans and other healthy things I couldn't even pronounce that you come in and you just pull them out of this bucket and put them in your own container and weigh them and go home. I'm pretty sure they had like sugar detectors at the door to just like flash if anything unhealthy is walking in. So we're walking around trying to find anything that's like, you know, makes you happy or something. Just walking around. Is there anything good in this place besides rhubarb? And so I'm walking around and around the corner comes this little girl, maybe four or five years old, and she's just real cute, got smudges on her cheeks, but what drew my attention to her is that she was barefooted, and she was walking around with no shoes on, and just kind of made me laugh and chuckle a little bit. I'm just like, somebody's kid took their shoes off and was walking through the store, that's funny. And then around the corner, following her, comes her father and her mother and her baby sister, and all of them are barefooted. And becomes quickly apparent to us that this is a purposeful action, that they wanted to ground themselves to the earth and just be free and eat those buckets of quinoa and rhubarb or celery sticks or whatever gross things they're doing. And I got to say, it was really jarring for us. It wasn't offensive. It was just really unexpected. Because we all grew up with this mindset and knowing that no shoes, no shirt, no right. And so when you go to Target or a health food store or some place that sells things, you expect people to be wearing shoes. On the opposite side, if I go to a pool party or a barbecue, if anybody has a pool or wants to do a barbecue party this summer and you want to invite me, please call me. And if I go to your house for a pool party or a barbecue and you jump into the pool with your shoes on, that's also a little bit jarring. It's also a little bit weird. I'm like, what are you doing? Why is that? Because... At the beginning of this year, we talked that there's a way of living and a way not to live. We all grew up with these things put into our lives, these principles that if you go to a store, you wear your shoes. You jump into a pool, you take them off. These ideas of mindset behind it. But today, just a principle by itself doesn't have very much power. The beginning of this year, the first message that we kicked off with was talking about this way of living in Ephesians chapter 4. And Paul's talking about there's a way to do things and a way not to do things. And he says, take off the old life and put on the new life. And that's a principle. Great. Wonderful. How many of you know how to take off the old life and put on the new life? Is it like taking off an old sweater and putting that on? Is it something I do right in the morning? And so today, Paul follows that up, verse 24, and he jumps right into verse 25. And he doesn't just give us the principle, but he gives us the practice in the practical way of what this new life looks like. Not just uh, an idea, you should probably wear shoes in public spaces, but a way to do it. Actually put the shoes on your feet and wear them in public spaces. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today, and we're going to pick it up in verse 25. Would you please just stand with me as I read today's scripture, guiding scripture of what we're going to be speaking on today. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 25, I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all part of the same body. 
Don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you are a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good, hard work, and then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, He has identified you as His own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and rage, anger, harsh words and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. In the original form that we receive the Bible, none of these chapters and numbers were there. Scholars and translators later put those in there as they tried to help us to be able to categorize and understand our Bible and give us a framework and a reference to work with. And so I believe this thought is finished through verse 2. And so we're going to go into verse chapter 5. It says, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice, a pleasing aroma to God. Amen. Father God, we just give you all the glory and all the honor today. God, I pray that these words would come alive to us, God, that they would start speaking to us, God. They wouldn't just be merely principles, but ways of living practices that we can start instituting into our everyday normal life, God. Lord, I pray that you would just, Spirit, would just come and start speaking to us and working on us right now, God. I pray that this wouldn't just be another Sunday we show up and then go home, God, but this would be a Sunday where we meet you and experience you, God, and begin to work these principles and these practices deep into our life, Father. Let us leave encouraged and filled with your presence today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can grab a seat. And so today we're going to be looking at these really four things, friends, four practices to institute into our life that Paul is speaking about and showing us how a way to live practically. Take off the old, put on the new. What does that look like? And so we're going to start with the very first one. You may, it may surprise you. Did you know that lying is probably the most pervasive and I, I think normalized, minimalized sin that most people consistently and daily commit? According to multiple surveys and studies, on average, about 75% of Americans lie daily, telling anywhere from two to four, on average, lies per day. I was poking around on the internet this last week, and I found an article from a tutor, a school teacher, and they were listing reasons that their students gave them for not being able to turn in their homework on time. And I'll read them to you, and you can decide for yourself, lie or truth. Number one, it just slipped out of my hands and blew away. And coincidentally, that's also why I'm late. I was running after it. Number two, I was not able to hold the pencil because my finger hurt. Three, my dad wasn't well and my mom wasn't home. How do you expect me to be accountable for myself? There was nobody here to make me do it. You told us to do all the questions, but we're supposed to bring them back to you? <laughs> Patty, may the Lord work on you. Okay, my younger sibling ripped it apart. We had the electricity cut off in our house, and I had to ignite it to get enough light to see the fuse box. 
I got soap in my eyes and it blinded me for the rest of the night. I have a solar-powered calculator and the weather was just too cloudy. I couldn't work. I left my homework on your desk before you came in, but it's just not there. I had handwritten it. It took me for ages. Somebody must have stolen it. And this is my favorite one. My father went through a nervous breakdown, and he had to use all the pages of my homework to make paper boats. That's the one that takes the cake for me. You know, I remember being newly married and uh, really just navigating these relational waters with my wife, and she did a lot of the cooking, and so she tried, she, my wife will try just random new recipes, she just finds them, and it's great, it's always something new in the house. And one time she tried to make this new, healthier cornbread recipe. Basically, she took everything good out of it and replaced it with Greek yogurt and salt, okay? And so... Uh, that's at least what it tasted like to me. And honestly, uh, you know, when she asked me, you know, how is it? How do you like it? <clears throat> Love it, honey. Oh, that's the best thing I've had all day. Woo! Save this one. This is a good one. And honestly, maybe lies come a little easier to us than we realize. Maybe it's the, to avoid a fight. Yeah, honey, cornbread's great. Yes, I'd love to go do and stop at, uh, you know, after work and go grocery shopping and pick those things up on the way home. Maybe it's to get out of an uncomfortable situation like a speeding ticket or a missing assignment at home. Perhaps it's just easier. How many say this lie every single day? How are you? I'm fine. I'm not fine on the inside, but I don't want to talk to you about it. So I'm fine. I'm good. All life's good, but it's just falling apart on the inside. Lying might be more pervasive in our daily lives than we might initially think. But honesty is such a big deal to God. It's a big deal to God because it's not just a characteristic or a way to do life. It is who God is. In John chapter 14, when he's teaching his disciples who he is, Jesus calls himself three things. Does anybody know what those three things are? Somebody said it. I am the way... I am the truth, and I am the life. Jesus, God in person, came to earth, and he's saying, this isn't just something we do, but it is who I am. I am the way to God. I am the truth of God, and I am Jesus, the only one way to life. Earlier in John, he describes Jesus not only as the truth, but filled with it. In John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, The Word became flesh and it dwelt among us. Meaning that God became personable, touchable right here in our presence. We have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Psalms 5, 6, the psalmist says, You will destroy those who tell lies. The Lord detests murderers and deceivers. In Ephesians 4, 25, so stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all part of the same body. This honesty got us into the mess that the world is in today. In the very beginning, we see a little white lie change forever how the earth would operate. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of those trees in the garden? Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. 
God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you see it. And you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And she didn't die when she ate it. Immediately. He was right. But he was also twisting and manipulating the truth to show her a version of it that was appealing to her. A version of it that wasn't actually true, but it appeared true. He was living a lie. A little white lie won't hurt anything. In my estimation, a little white lie is what caused sin to come into the world. It's what led Eve and Adam into that decision of stop trusting God, but to start trusting them own selves, to trust another voice into their life. God had not proved himself wrong. God had never lied to them or hurt them, but a little white, innocent. Is that really what God said? Will that really hurt you? Is God's intentions to you really good? And it shifted their thinking and their mindset. And they did something that if they could have taken back, they would have. In John chapter 8, we see that lying and deception and manipulation has always been Satan's way of living. John 8, he says this, He was a murderer from the beginning. This him being Jesus. He is a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is the liar, and he is a liar and the father of lies. Very practically, Paul is calling all believers to just live an honest life. Don't live your life in hiding. Don't live away uh, in a way that's secretive. Don't live in a way that you would feel shame if others knew how you lived. Don't live a double life. Just live honestly, true. Good things do not need to be kept away or hidden. You know, the Bible actually talks about not hiding your life, but putting it out on display. Don't live under a basket. Go and live, right? Proverbs 12, 22. The Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in those who tell the truth. Why is this? Because deceit is Satan's default, and truth is who God is. So what is this new nature that we're supposed to be putting on? The one that resembles God? From principle to practice, it starts by living our lives and living lives that are marked with honesty and integrity. The next principle, and really guys, this is an overview. We're taking a long time to go through scripture slowly. We've been in Ephesians for a couple months now. We're going slowly verse by verse. But when I was talking to my wife, I said, man, these, this section of verses easily could have been a five-point series just in itself. So today we're not doing that because we do need to end the series at some point. But we're doing a very high overview of what all of these are and looking into your lives. And so the next one is a principle of self-control, living a self-controlled life says, don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. For anger gives a foothold to the devil. What I want to be very clear about right here is that Paul is not saying, don't be angry in this verse. Anger in itself is not a sin. Anger in itself is not wrong. Anger is an emotion. It is a response to circumstances. What you do after you feel those things 
is where the line can be crossed. Feelings are not wrong. God feels things. It's in the Bible that God expresses joy and disappointment, love and loss, happiness and grief and anger. He's actually angry quite a bit in the Bible. We are made in his likeness, in his image, and so we feel because God feels. We feel things because God created us to feel things. We feel because our spiritual parent does, and we inherited his likeness. Anger in itself is not wrong, but often what we do after we feel it is what gets us in trouble. One scholar translated this, this verse this way. He said, let your anger, let not your anger be mixed with sin. And I love that idea of that you can have these two feelings, but just when you mix them is when you get off and wrong. You know, this idea to me when I was thinking about this, it's like gasoline and fire. I love gasoline. It gets me place to place. I don't love paying for gasoline, but I love gasoline. I also really love fire. I love, there's nothing like sitting around a bonfire in the fall or turning on your fireplace during a cold winter's night. But in either of those situations, it's not maybe quite the results that you want when you mix gasoline and fire together. You get explosive results. And so Paul's not saying don't feel your anger. He's saying don't mix it with sin. It's really easy for us to do that, though. In our culture, we've learned that anger gets us what we want. I can yell at my kids, and they'll just do it. I can punch a wall and I can feel better in the moment right before I break my hand. I can slam a door and all that anger coursing in me feels good just to get it out. Or I can go to bed and just stew and just imagine how I would get even with you because you ticked me off so bad. I can imagine if I had the opportunity to respond to you or to say what I really want to say, what I would do. Anger in itself is an emotion. And in its healthy stage, it's an indicator to something going on in your life. But it is not a good controlling force. Anger in its proper use. And there's righteous uses. We, classic uses, Jesus flipping over tables in the temple. There's righteous anger. Anger is a good response to abuse and manipulation in the world. Anger is a, a proper response when you see somebody hurting or on the, uh, on the receiving end of sin. It should stir something in you. This last week was human trafficking awareness. There was a specific day. And when you see that, how some people treat other people, how sin is so pervasive and manipulating and destroying people, anger is the right response. But to feel frustrated with your children, and then to just let it all out on them. To feel mad at your spouse and to take it out on them. To, for your boss to hurt you and then to stew and to just let that sit there in your heart will begin to corrupt you. When I think about the worst moments in my life or most regret regrettable moments in my life as a parent, as a parent, as a spouse, boss, employee, brother, or son, or a friend, the things I regret the most, those situations, almost all of them, are tied to anger. Things I did or didn't do, said or shouldn't have said, reacted in a certain way because I allowed anger to control me instead of me controlling my emotions. Feel it 
but don't allow it to mix with sin. The great sage of the 90s, Master Yoda, he says, anger leads to hate, and hate leads to suffering. Sitting and stewing and reacting allows yourself to be controlled by anger because it does genuinely feel good. But maybe you've noticed this, is that when you give in to anger, let me put it this way. How many people in the new year have been working to try to become healthier in some way? Working out, eating better, just doing something to improve their lives. Okay, good, 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 good. A lot of that stems from self-control or self-will, right? I will not eat this cake, and I will eat a bowl of oatmeal for breakfast. I don't know if that's a real-life scenario for you. That is for me. So sometimes it takes that. And so I've been working to implement a better regime of exercise in my life. But you know what happens? I get home, I get, I'm tired, get it all through the day. I finally have that opening to go work out, but I see the couch. <laughs> what if I just sat here for just five minutes, and then I'll get up? So I sit down, and five minutes becomes ten, and ten becomes fifteen. And you know, I, I, you know what, three more minutes, I will really get up. Then my wife puts on a show, and then it just realizes that this couch is so comfortable, and it would take so much effort to get out of the couch, and all of a sudden you realize that a quick little decision to give into something, it's just a couple minutes, and then I'll go. You get stuck, and it's harder and harder to do the thing you want to do. And so it's really easy to say and just respond in anger and say, you know, I'm just punch that wall and I'll feel better, say that thing and I'll be better. But the more control you give to it, the harder it is to reverse it. The more that you give and allow anger to control you, the harder it is to be the person and do the thing that you want to do. If this was a 90s commercial or an ad, it might look kind of like this. Be cool, dude. Don't stew. Can you actually turn to somebody right now and just say, be cool, dude. Don't stew. Paul not only gives us this idea of don't be controlled by anger, but he says deal with it. Don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. Don't be angry when you go to bed. So often we like to maybe don't even do anything about it. I don't react. I don't, I don't say the things that I don't want to say. I don't respond in anger, but you know what? I'm just going to sit with it. You hurt me. I'm mad at you for whatever reason. I'm just going to sit with it. I'm going to stew with it. And it just sits there. And you think, you know what? It's not really worth talking about. It's not really worth bringing up. It's me thing. It's not a them thing. You know what? I'll just, I'll just deal with this on my own. And you go to bed angry. A little tiff with your spouse. You know what? It'll blow over. Everything will be fine in the morning. Whatever. Just roll over. Don't talk to them until the morning. What happens? You wake up angry still. And that little thing of anger, if you'd taken care of it, could have not had anything else control in your life. You know, a lot of you guys know that I really, really love coffee. Somebody asked me last week if I'm a coffee nerd or geek, and the proper terminology for my kind is coffee enthusiast. Okay, that is the proper term. But one of the great enemies to a great cup of coffee is attached to every single one of our coffee pots, and it's called the hot plate. You can have an incredible cup of coffee, the right beans and the right grind and the right brew temperature and the right water. If you put all of that great cup of coffee that's brilliant, beautiful acidity and light and just tastes good and perfectly balanced, it could all sit there. And you put it on that coffee pot and you leave it on that hot carafe or that hot plate, come back to it, what happens? The hot plate begins to heat it up 
and it begins to bring out all of the negative flavors in the coffee you don't want. A once beautiful cup of coffee, come back to it in an hour, or have, if you've ever done this, come back to it the next day and see what that coffee pot looks like. Burned and charred and rancid and incredibly bitter and condensed. And that is what anger, when you leave it unchecked and undealt with, is doing to your soul. It is bringing out all the negative things in you that you do not want to be. The rancid and the bitter and the angry. And it lingers and is there festering inside of you. And so Paul gives us this very, very practical practice to put into our lives. From principle to practice of don't let anger control you. Don't let it mix with your emotion. Don't let it mix with your actions. And don't go to bed still angry. Deal with it. The next verse, 28, says, If you are a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good, hard work, and then give generously to others in need. The word thief here does not imply the professional kind of Ocean's Eleven's kind of type of malicious, calculated kind of thievery, okay? It's not a professional. And maybe that's a great small group question for you later. Which Ocean's Eleven thief would you be? Obviously, the slim gymnast for me, but I don't know what it is for you. But the word here for thief instead refers to a dishonestly lived or dishonest gain in life. I don't know how frequent or common stealing is today, but if you're doing it, stop! Simple as that. Go work really hard. Earn what you take home. Trust God to provide for what you lack. Don't gain it through malevolent or wrong means. Live a life of integrity. But there's an underlying principle in this that is beautiful and goes beyond just stealing and gaining. I like to think of it as math that you could use every day on like trigonometry. It is the idea of deleting and then adding to your life. And so I'm going to quote somebody that you may or may not know. It's an uh, author and writer. Her name is Amy Wen. And she wrote a little sermon in a speech a few months ago, and she said this, Repentance is an act of turning away from sin and turning to God. It's a, both a deletion and an addition. Deleting the ways of the old and adding a new God-centered practice. If stealing is your thing, true repentance would be cease stealing and start a practice of generosity. So as I am faithful to work the spirit in me to cease my cyclic performance-driven ways of achievement and polished perfection, I am called to instead move into a place of vulnerability and authenticity. There's an idea here that Paul is sowing into us is don't just stop the bad things. Replace them with a good thing. My wife works really hard to impart this practice to our children. You hit your sister with your hands. So instead of using those hands for uh, hurting, how can you use them to show her love? Maybe it's going and cleaning up the toys for her or fixing her bed, but you just did something that hurt her. How can you use them to help her or help her feel loved? You just use your words to hurt them. How could you instead make them feel loved with your words? And it's just not just stopping a bad thing and hyper-focusing on not doing the things you don't want to do, but replacing them with good practices and good things. But we don't just stop doing bad things. We start doing good things. And we don't just do good things. Paul teaches us that we also speak good too. 
And this is the final practice from Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. At prayer night this past week, it was just really highlighted and impressed on me when we got to this time of thanksgiving and calling out and thinking of the things that we're thankful to God for, not just to thank Him for what we are thankful for, because honestly, often I'm not thankful for very much. Very, very, very little and embarrassing things can ruin my whole day. My coffee's off. Stepped on a Lego on the way out the door. Stinking dog pooped and I stepped in it. Those kinds of things, very small things, can completely ruin my whole day. And so honestly, I'm not thankful for a lot of things very often. But this idea came to me and this thought in Scripture and just reading is that instead of what are you thankful for, what could you be thankful for? I'm not thankful for the dog right now, but I could be. I'm not thankful that I have enough money right now to be able to get my kids Christmas presents that I could step on them on my way out to work or in the middle of the night, but I could be. I'm not thankful for this, but I could. And you start speaking those things out. And as you start speaking out good instead of bad, it's incredible what starts happening in your life. It's incredible the things and the power that your words have in your day-to-day life. Guard your mouth. Don't just do good, but speak good. My sister-in-law's father, he owned a pizza shop. And I don't know about you if you've ever worked in the food industry, but I worked in a pizza shop. It was one of my first jobs when I was a teenager, and I worked in another restaurant also, and Uh, I learned ways, I knew most of all the bad words, but I learned in those restaurant businesses ways to string them together in such beautifully artistic ways I had never experienced before. And so when I would go to those places, it was never really an uplifting experience. It was more of a way to just call out curses and anger and voice them in very unique and gifted ways, honestly. But as I was talking to Mark just about how he ran his shop and how he operated his business, what really stuck out to me is that he had a standard for speaking in his pizza shop. He'd get these teenagers in, and they would speak how often our culture speaks, and it's very common usage and language and everything. And he would correct them and say, hey, we, we just don't talk like that here. You can outside of here, but when you're on the clock and here, we don't say these words and we don't speak this way. And what happened out of that is that he began to gain respect with those kids and those students. Many of them he would go and take, and he was the one that taught them how to drive so they could pass their license test. They were the ones that he would mentor and work with, and he began to build a culture of honor and encouragement in his shop. It's just a beautiful, beautiful thing because he had a standard for how he would speak. Doesn't mean he always hit it, doesn't mean everybody hit it, but he had a standard that they were shooting for is that our words build up instead of tear down. They encourage instead of discourage. They speak life into you instead of death. Your words hold tremendous power. Be careful of how you use them. How you speak to your how you speak to or about your spouse, your kids, and your mother or father-in-law, your friends, your siblings, your boss, your coworkers, your neighbors. What you speak about them has influence. It could influence those people or to be one way or another. One way to think about it is what we, we grow what we sow.
It's a little agricultural lingo for you Hampshire Marengo Hicks out there. I see you. I'm speaking to you today. We grow what we sow. But you can literally transform the environment you live in because your words have power. Probably most of us can remember a remark from growing up as a kid said by somebody that meant to hurt you, maybe out of anger, maybe some way they even loved you, but they said something that has always stuck with you. You'll never be enough. You're fat, you're skinny, you're short, you're tall. You can't play with us. There's boys only, girls drool, whatever. But most of us probably have that negative ringing phrase that stuck with us. And maybe you also on the other positive end have a phrase that somebody spoke to you and it has shaped your life. I remember as an 18-year-old student, Miss Patty came and she sat me down in her office. It was a counselor and she was talking to me. It was the first time that anybody called me a leader. Anybody. I never saw it. Leadership scared me so much. I would rather, I was always the guy on the outside just trying to say, do you like me? Are we really friends? Do you even want to be around me? Does my mom pay you to be my friend? Like, why are we even here? Always questioning and doubting. And the idea of ever being any type of leader, leading a family or leading a small group or leading a Bible study or leading a management position at a pizza shop or whatever, it scared me and I just could not fathom it. But I remember at the age of 18, Miss Patty saying, you are a leader. It forever changed my life. Your words have power, friends. Use them wisely. Don't just do good but speak good too. Band, you can make your way up to the front as we close. Chapter 5. We have finally, after three or four months, made it to chapter 5, my friends. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love following the example of Christ. I was watching this video this last week about running. And the person in the video gave this interesting thought. They're saying if you want to develop a habit of running and running farther than you ever think you could, the way to start is to stop thinking about how far you're going. Stop thinking about just I need to run a mile or two miles. You just need to start getting out there and running. Just start running. You need to run more. So if you put those negative things in there, I just need to get there, or I can only run two miles, you'll never exceed that. Often, we like to focus on the negative things and the bad things. I need to stop lying. I need to stop being so angry. I need to live honestly. I need to stop yelling and cussing and berating people so much. But if you've ever trained a dog, you'll notice pretty much universally the training is positive reinforcement. This idea of not focusing on the negative but looking for that one time that dog does the good thing and then you say, yes, good job. That one time they actually go to the bathroom outside, yes, good job, and not the 30 and 40 times they pee on that new rug. It's the idea of positive reinforcement, focusing on the good. And this is the idea of what I want to end our time with together today, guys, is that I do not want you to walk out of here feeling beat up and thinking, man, I have so much to work on. My mouth and my hands and how I conduct myself and my anger, it all controls me and all those things might apply. I'm just so mad. I'm just not the person I want to be. I just wish I was better. Ah! And just let it all out. Paul ends and he gives us this thought. Imitate God. Live a life of love and follow Christ's example. 
And so you may need to put practical standards. Or maybe God's even working your heart and directing your attention and saying, this is for you, this, this place or this thought or this area of your life I want to grow you in, but I do not think it's in a way of to say, shame, shame, shame on you. You bad, bad person. God wants to highlight and pull the good things, the things that he's growing in you, the things that he put in you. And he's trying to pull them out of you. And sometimes that's painful. It comes this chipping process, taking away the old and revealing what's inside of you. But for us, the focus that I want us to walk out with is not focusing on all the things that we could improve on, but focusing on who we're trying to be. In the lobby, you see these words painted on the black wall. Be, become, and do. And those three words is this mentality, this idea of what we are all trying to do, which is to become Jesus. And so the more time that you, you be with him, spend with him, you start to become like him. You start to take on some of his nature and character. The more time you rub shoulders with people, the more time you start acting like those people. I've noticed that I have to be careful how much I listen to other preachers at any given time because I start to talk like them. And I start to use examples like them. I, got, I have to remember to just be careful of where I spend my time. And so the more time you rub shoulders with God and you be with him, the more you become like him. And eventually, you'll start doing the things that he did. Imitate God. Live a life of love. And then follow Christ's example. My wife, she works in, she works with special needs students. And recently she was working with a student that had, had really struggled with this habit of hitting themselves. It was just their go-to. If there's a dull moment, an empty moment, or a frustrating moment, they would just hit themselves aggressively. And so she's working with him all day and she's just trying to, to just help him to, just help him, help him to adapt, help him to adapt to his environment. The teacher walked out of the room and she said, hey, I gotta, I'll be right back. Just, just keep him from hitting himself. Just tell him to stop. So it ended up being like 20 minutes, half an hour. My wife quickly realized, I'm not just going to sit here and, and prioritize what this kid's doing wrong. I'm not just going to sit here for 20 minutes and tell him, stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself. And she started finding ways to get his hands to focus on things that are good, the things that are something else to keep them busy. Here, take this pencil. Here's a piece of paper. Can we draw this? Can you point to the animals on the page? Can you start and starting to occupy his mind with ways that he could be better or growing into? Be, become, and do. Imitate God. Live a life of love and follow Christ's example be with Jesus. As you're with him, you'll start to become like him, and eventually you will begin to do the things that he did.